in connection with Lord's Day 8. Acts chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 22. This is the word of God. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, my tongue was glad, moreover my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to seek corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us yet to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that are the fruit of his body according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, that every one of you be baptized into the name of the Father of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, that you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, <coughs> and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among them, among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved thus far. Would you then also turn with me in the back of your Psalter hymnal to page 875. Page 875, Lord's Day 8, page 875, just one question and answer. I 
remind you that this is your confession of faith as it is mine. Lord's Day 8, question and answer 24. How are these articles divided? It is then talking about the 12 articles of the, uh, of the Apostles' Creed that were the finished, the end of, a, of a question and answer 23. I didn't read them, but we have confessed them together just a few moments ago, the Apostles' Creed. And then it says, how are these articles of, I could say the articles of the creed divided? And then the answer comes into three parts. God the Father and our creation. God the Son and our deliverance. And God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. These three distinct persons are one true and eternal God. Thus far, the reading of the scriptures and the summary of that word as we find it in the creeds and confessions of the church, may God add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching again this afternoon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, gathered here in Salem with me this afternoon, it seems to be the determination and at least the temptation of contemporary Christianity to obscure the lines of demarcation between truth and error. In so many so-called religious quarters, great efforts are being made to merge the different beliefs of men and to water down any conception of absolute truth to some vague common denominator, all for the sake of some kind of questionable ecumenical unity. The most irreconcilable points of doctrine, it seems, can be somehow magically harmonized. Those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God and those who deny it can somehow gather under the same creed. And those who believe that the Bible is the word of God and those who believe it to be the words of man mingled with some words of God can somehow still make common cause together. Those who hold to salvation by grace and those who teach of a meritorious salvation through works are only all too eager oftentimes to compromise and to jump into bed together. And sometimes even those who confess that salvation is an act of a mighty sovereign God through grace by faith can somehow be found marching in the same parade with those who hold it to be a matter of free will and man's choice. And in the ecumenical climate in which we live today, differences of belief and religion are being minimized or worse yet even declared to be sinful but Jesus had a much different view of what is necessary to believe, and he taught that all who believe the gospel, the gospel, his gospel, would be saved, and all who held to any other gospel would be condemned. Nothing unclear about that. Nothing uncertain about that. There was no obscurity or vagueness about the matter. To him, it was crystal clear. To Christ, a man's creed or a man's confession is black or white. It's never gray. You believe his gospel or you don't. You have the right creed or you have the wrong creed. You either gather or you scatter. You're either with him or you're against him. You are either on the wide road or on the narrow road. No middle road was possible. 
And by today's standards of contemporary Christianity, Christ was very judgmental and uncharitable. Ironically, today in many so-called Christian quarters, Christ himself would be considered to be unchristian because of his commitment to truths that were absolute and non-negotiable. Christ would not be acceptable to much of what passes itself off as Christian today. But in spite of the opposition by contemporary modern liberal theologians, historic Christianity still strives, in the face of great opposition even, to remain true to her Christ. True Christianity refuses to become a a composite or combination of all sorts of different and diverse creeds. True Christianity does what Christ told us to do, namely going out into the world to preach the right and complete gospel to every creature on a simple believe-it-or-not basis. That gospel, in the words of John the Baptist, says, He that believeth in the Son has everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life. Nothing unclear about that. He that does not believe in the Son will not see eternal life. No salvation, then apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. People of God, the most pressing need of the day is that men and women everywhere will be given something solid on which to set their feet as they make their way through this life on the way to the next. This age of relativism, unbelief, doubt, confusion, desperately needs the light of absolute truth which is found only in the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ, for he is the way the only way of truth and life. Once again, the world and the church both are in desperate need of men with strong convictions and unflinching courage who are willing to stand up and echo the words of Christ by saying, this is true, this is not. Believe this and be saved. Believe that and die. Such a man will not be popular. But Christ met with the same rejection for doing and saying exactly the same thing. Christ made no compromise with truth. Christ spoke in absolutes. He pointed clearly to the only way of salvation, telling us that any other road would lead to hell. Call him smug. Call him narrow-minded. Call him intolerant, if you will. But remember that he was motivated by his love. For sinners. His was the desire to shed light in their darkness, to grant his truth amid error in order that men and women could be saved. The gospel of faith centered in Christ and founded upon the infallible word of God was what Jesus meant when he commissioned his disciples to go into the world to preach the gospel. Their preaching was clear and decisive. Those who have the Son have life. Those who have not the Son have no life. The preaching of the gospel by the disciples left no doubt about where they stood in relation to Christ. Men and women could see that they had been with Jesus. And so it was natural then that over time, the teachings of the disciples as they had learned them from Christ were summarized and formulated by the church into what we today call the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles didn't write it. The Apostles taught it. The church formulated it into a creed. And that creed, rightly understood and explained, 
brings men and women the gospel of Jesus Christ and ministers to the greatest need of this, to this age of confusion. And with a view to that end, we begin this afternoon a careful study of the Apostles' Creed. May God guide us as we learn together the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I've ministered God's word to you this afternoon using as my theme, faith in the triune God. Faith in the triune God. We want to see, first of all, the evidence of the Trinity in the mighty acts of God. And then, secondly, we want to see evidence of the Trinity in the simple word of God. So, faith in the triune God. We'll see evidence of the Trinity in the mighty acts of God. And we'll see evidence of the Trinity in the simple word of God. Congregation, in Lord's Day 7... We listened to our confession concerning the content and the activity of our faith. And today in Lord's Day 8, we will probe just a little deeper into this matter. We will discover that what we believe is not simply a, a, a system of thought or doctrines or a philosophy of life, if you will know. When we break down the Apostles' Creed and we, we break it down and interpret it, we discover that what is being confessed by us here is that we believe in God. My dear people of God, I'm a great proponent of what is called systematic theology. I'm ever so thankful for the work of men who have helped us to understand our theology systematically, but, but, but we do not simply believe dry theories or dead principles. No, we believe in a sovereign and a divine being. We believe in a, in a living God. We believe in a God who is active and living, although invisible is not far away, and although he is and remains incomprehensible, yet he has a clear identity. We believe in the living God of heaven and earth. That's the point of Lord's Day 8. The 12 statements are a summary of the entire Christian faith, but if you examine more closely the creed, you will discover that these 12 articles can be simplified or subdivided even further. You will learn that basic and foundational to our confession is that we believe in one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when the Catechism now speaks in Lord's Day 8 of God, the triune God, it does not do so in abstract terms. No, it points immediately to the mighty acts of God. The first question reads, how are these articles divided? And the answer they're given is not simply into three parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No. Instead, the answer reads, God the Father and our creation. God the Son and our redemption and God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. In other words, it points us immediately to the mighty acts of an almighty God. It teaches us of a God who creates, it teaches us of God who redeems, and a God who sanctifies already and again. All glory to God and to God alone. And it's important that we notice this carefully. God is not some distant abstract factor but he is a living God from whom, through whom, and for whom all things are all things and from whom all blessings flow. Therefore, we believe not in a God out there someplace, up there somewhere where we can't see or find him. No, he is the God who comes to us mightily, concretely, in great and marvelous works of which the apostle joyfully spoke of on that great day of Pentecost. We read it together. 
And what we learn here in this Lord's Day is that God is mighty in his works and that in his work we have the beginning, the continuation, and the perfection of all of our lives. He created us. He redeemed us. And he perfects us in order to again receive us to himself. We confess, I believe in God the Father and our, or we may say, my creation. He is the almighty creator of heaven and earth. In him lies the origin and the beginning of all things. No thing, no one exists apart from his divine, sovereign determination. And the Catechism drives the truth home in a very clear but also a personal way. It speaks of God the Father and our or my creation. In other words, you and I owe our personal existence to the Father. In one mighty deed, in six days, he called the entire world into being. But, but he, also called, he also called each of us, each one of us, into being and placed us on this earth. Without the work of the Father, there would be no creation. We would not exist. Remember now also that along with his creating activity, God the Father also provided government and providence. In other words, God did not just create. He did not just create the world and wind it up as some big clock and then wait, sit back and wait to see how it would wind down and then await the alarm bells that would bring destruction of his hand. No. He determines each and every one of our days. Moment by moment, he fills our lives and directs our paths every step of the way. Our lives in their entirety are surrounded by the providential care of God the Father, the God of the covenant promises. And so we're taught of God the Father and my creation. But the Catechism then goes on to confess belief in God the Son and our redemption. And it is there in him, in the Son, that we find our only hope. His work is the only hope for our salvation. Here we confess that we, we fell away from God in sinful rebellion. We became totally depraved and we stood condemned deserving of an eternity in hell. And we stood there unwilling and even unable to return to God to experience his blessing. And left on our own without divine intervention, we would not, we could not taste of his heavenly mercy. But, but, but God the Son came to free us from this bondage of sin and death through the mighty act of redemption. Through his open grave, he opened paradise for us. Indeed, but he did so by opening the heart of the Father to us. And once again, this Son of God is not some distant, impersonal being, but he is Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, the Christ of God. He's the Son of God who became one of us in the flesh. He is the God of redemption. He is the redeemed of the church. And what's more, he is a personal redeemer. He has rescued and redeemed you and me. No one can be saved apart from God the Son. There is no other name under heaven or on earth by which men and women can be saved.
For as the apostle writes, he who has not the Son has not life. And then finally in this question and answer, we confess to believe in God, the Holy Spirit, and our sanctification, holiness. That's what sanctification means. And here we confess, not as some would have us believe, that God simply gives us a chance to save ourselves by making the right decisions and the correct, correct choices in life in our own power. No, a chance at salvation is no chance at all. Here we confess that the scripture teaches us that the Holy Spirit of God actively sets about, actively works, divinely intervenes in order to sanctify us, to renew us in holiness and restore us to the image of the Father. It is he, it is the Spirit, his Spirit, that leads us back to the Father. We confess here to believe in a work of regeneration and sanctification, a work so powerful that it equals the power of the resurrection from the dead. People got marvel with me here for a moment. Stand in amazement and think about this with me for a moment. God the Creator, with the almighty power of his voice, called into being out of nothing the entire universe. We all know that we understand that. We know that story. But what is often forgotten is that it is that same power of that same voice today that recreates. God the Holy Spirit, through the power of the word of God, through the power of the word of God, takes people people dead in sin and trespass and makes them alive in Christ. He takes unfruitful and sterile impotent servants and he causes them to bear fruit. He takes unworthy sinners and makes them worthy in Christ. People God, are you hearing it? Are you putting the pieces together? Are you picking up what I'm laying down here? We confess to believe in a triune God evident in his mighty works, our creation, redemption, and the renewal of our lives lie only in that triune God. And it is of that same great God that we speak every time we baptize a child and we say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God the Father creates our children. God the Son recreates our children or redeems our children and God this and God this the God the son redeems our children and God the holy spirit recreates our children so we confess God in the unity and the totality of his mighty acts it's all or nothing you cannot believe in redemption without understanding and believing creation we can have no redemption without sanctification you cannot have saving faith without that coming to expression in holy Christ-like living. You cannot, you cannot, as some do, claim to believe in Jesus and the forgiveness of sin without believing in the work of the Spirit who recreates us into holiness in our living. There's only one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you either share in all his work or you share in none of it. That's the clear testimony of scripture. Nothing uncertain about that. Our catechism goes on to ask a second important question in connection with the doctrine of the Trinity. We read, since there is only one God, why do you speak of three 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And my dear precious people of God, it's an undeniable fact that the doctrine of the Trinity is a difficult doctrine to understand and even more difficult to explain. It is clear from Scripture that there's only one true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. That was common knowledge among the people of God in the Old Testament. You shall have no other gods besides me. Also in the New Testament, we hear the Apostle Paul saying to the Corinthians, there may be many so-called gods, idols of men, but we know that there is no God but one. Well, says the Catechism, if that's true, why do you then speak of three? Why then speak of three persons? Congregation, if there is any doctrine that is inexplicable, it is this one. We cannot even begin to fathom and comprehend the depth of the divine being and the intricacies of the Holy Trinity. However, that is not to say that we therefore do not need to believe it. Just because we can't understand it or adequately explain it doesn't mean that we don't have to believe it. And that's also exactly the approach that is taken by the Catechism. Why do we speak of three? Because God has so revealed himself in his word. Or if you will, why do we speak of three? Because the Bible says so. Simple, short, sweet, to the point. In other words, if the Bible said it, God said it. And if God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. The Bible tells of the wondrous reality that in one true and eternal God, we have, they are three distinct persons. In the Bible, it is so clear that it is beyond question, yet at the same time, it is so deep that it's beyond our understanding. Three distinct persons, says the Bible, for the Father is not the Son. The Father did not take our flesh upon himself. The Son was not poured out on Pentecost. The one is not the other, yet the three are one, the one true and eternal God. This is the simple word of God. Think of the words we read together from Acts chapter 2, where we hear Peter crying out, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out that which you see and hear. Did you hear the name, the three names of the three persons in this passage? And yet at the same time, do you realize that we are dealing with that same one God? We hear the exalted Son. We hear the poured out Spirit. And we hear the promise of the Father. Three distinct persons, yet one in essence, action and greatness. The Apostle Peter does not ask, nor does he try to answer all the questions. He simply explains what God has revealed about himself. It's not a problem in scripture. No, it's simply a glorious reality. People of God, when we confess to believe in God, what we are confessing is that we believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In these three persons, the one only true God comes to us. We cannot have one without the other. We may never try to break the unity of the Trinity. That too is the simple word of God. Understand with me here for a moment the beauty of the historic confession of the Reformed Christian. Over years, many errors have crept into the churches. On the one hand, one hand you have the so-called Jesus cults who have been enamored by a Jesus-only cultism. 
On the other hand, we have the charismatics with their undue, unbiblical emphasis on the work of the Spirit at the expense of the other two members of the Trinity. Not so the Reformed Christian. In faithfulness to Scripture, he has meticulously and tenaciously maintained the truth of a triune God, one in three, three in one, of equal essence, and all three equally indispensable in the work of salvation. And here we confess the importance of maintaining that balance of the triune Godhead. Why was the Spirit poured out? Because of the promise and the work of the Son. Why did Christ come in the flesh on our behalf? Because of the promise of the Father. Why did the Father make the promise? Because in this way he wanted to glorify himself. That's the testimony of Scripture. Plain and simple. God saves. God the Father. God the Son. And God the Holy Spirit. And if it is our desire to be children of the Father, it must be through the Son. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. If we desire to be servants of the Son, it must be through the Spirit. The way to the one God is by way of the Father, through the Son, by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what is signified in every baptism in the name of the triune God. And we are to be children of the Father who created us, who cares for us, and whose law we are to obey. We are to be servants of the Son who has redeemed us and preserves us and defends us from the powers of the Prince of Darkness. We are to be temples and instruments of the Holy Spirit who quickens us and who has come to dwell in us in order that we might be made holy unto the Lord. We are all of this through the triune God, or we are nothing. My dear precious saints of God, failing to acknowledge the triune nature of God has led to a multitude of heresies. From the initial error, the next steps are fatal. When a self-willed God is constructed over against the God of the Bible, then creation is denied. Evolution is espoused. Consequently, a need of the, for the Savior becomes diminished, for the consequence of sin is no longer understood. And accordingly, the Holy Spirit is wrenched from his throne, and the spirit of humanism is exalted and takes his place. The doctrine of the Trinity is foundational for the Christian. I remember well in one of my congregations, a young lady, very active, young girl, 2022, very active life of the church and active living faith, we thought, became enamored with a man who belonged to a Pentecostal church. Not your garden variety Pentecostal church, we discovered afterwards. She belonged to something called oneness Pentecostalism. And the hallmark of oneness Pentecostalism that they deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They believe in something called modalism. Yes, they believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, different modes of God. And in different times up throughout history, God reveals himself either as the Son or either as the Spirit or either as the Father. And ultimately, through a lot of work and many prayers and much tears, we excommunicated her because you cannot be saved apart from a belief 
in the doctrine of the Trinity. It's foundational for the Christian faith. To deny the doctrine of the Trinity is a denial of either creation or redemption or sanctification. And ultimately it is a denial of all three and then it is the destruction of true religion. Praise God then, people of God, people of Salem, praise God then that you had the privilege to be part of a church and a fellowship which not only confesses to believe in the Trinity, but which also insists that it is rightly understood and confessed and refuses to allow any compromise with this absolute and fundamental truth of historic Christianity. Without that truth, you have no truth. Without the gospel of the Trinity, you have no gospel. Not for yourself, not for your children, and also not to bring to the world outside. Praise God then that every Sunday again we rise to our feet to confess. I, matter of fact, I think we should rise to our feet. We don't, but we should. We rise to our feet to confess. But I believe in God the Father and my creation. I believe in God the Son and my redemption. And I believe in God the Holy Spirit and my sanctification. May it be so for each of us and our children. Shall we pray? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity.